Welcome to the future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, principal and founder of LVG & Co., an independent strategy consultancy based in New York City. Through quick and candid conversations with innovative leaders, we aim to foster new thinking and explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Future of XYZ. Today I am uh, privileged to speak with Joseph Blariot, who is the executive lead of institutions, governments, and cities at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which is a nonprofit aiming to accelerate the transition to a circulative, regenerative economy. He is also a former member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Consumption. Uh, and we met through the Financial Times Moral Money Summit. So Joss, it's such a pleasure to have you on Future of XYZ. Hi, Lisa. It's good to speak to you. And we're going to be speaking about something that you obviously know a whole bunch about in your over decade uh, long work at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which is the circular economy. Um, I think we should start by saying, what is the circular economy? Yeah, that's a really good starting point. Thank you. I think if you look at the way that value has been created uh, in the economic system since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, it really is a, a crude one-way take, make and waste system whereby you extract natural resources, you turn them into products, you sell them to the consumer, they get discarded one way. Circular economy really looks at creating value by avoiding to simply consume finite resources, but really making the most of what we have, circulating the value, designing it right for the system so that nothing doesn't fit anywhere, so there is no residual waste, and all of that with a view to regenerate natural systems in the process. So it really is a, a positive, better growth agenda that takes into account all the, uh, all the boundaries that the physical world has, uh, with a view to create prosperity within that. It's interesting because I think, you know, just to put a pin in it, it's circular and we often talk about the value chain in economic models, right? And it's, it's the supply chain through to the consumer to the end. And in this, at the end, there is no end. There's no finite extraction, the take make waste. It comes back around into the supply chain in an ideal world or whether we're talking about energy or whatever else, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And, uh, and of course, that's the high level vision. So nothing is as simple, but it's a really interesting goal and a perspective to have because you can, for instance, when it comes to agricultural products or the way we deal with food production, we can really close nutrient loops and really contribute to positive regeneration of the ecosystems. So when it comes to certain technical materials, there, there is going to be a bit of a loss because of laws of thermodynamics, etc. So nothing can be perpetually kept. But, but the, compared to what we have in the embedded structural waste in the system, we can do so much better. And the simple mindset of saying, we're going to create value and preserve that value instead of saying, we're going to create value and then rush to create more value by going back to the virgin material extraction, with all the negative externalities that that entails, that simple idea is really conducive to a whole new way of looking at uh, economic development. 
So I think it's important to, as we start thinking about where we are and the future of the circular economy, I'd like just to look backwards for a moment. If, I, if I'm extracting from, from this own thing and my own experience, this really, as you said, started in the early 1800s, late 1700s and the Industrial Revolution when we started creating consumption at scale. However, is there an accelerant an accelerated point it, was it in the 1950s like when did things start going and what was that tipping point that things have gotten to where we are today where you know even at davos a few days ago you know the entire world economy seems to be saying like wow maybe we need to shift well if you're looking at uh when things started to change and go into overdrive i, I think you did point at it the, the 50s really if you look at all the uh all the curves of the uh, number of cars on the road, the atmospheric pollution, all of these indicators, water stress, etc., they all go up massively starting from the 50s. So uh, I, I guess that there is a saturation of material comfort and stuff that gets thrown into the system that needs to be also um, well, updated, upgraded, and, and at some point, uh, consumerism had to be sold to the consumer. So there, there is, you know, <laughs> 1950s, think about the advertising industry, all of these things. And uh, yes, there are a lot. I mean, it's, it's not that we spent a lot of time looking at when exactly these start, things started to shift. But really, if you look at all the graphs and all the curves, the 1950s, roughly, is where it started kicking in. It's interesting because I, I, I asked that because maybe there is obviously some learning there of where we're going. So I think momentarily at this moment in time, I mean, we're really, I believe, having to look at this from a systemic perspective, right? And that is what we're talking about in the circular economy, which is economic, uh, environment, social, um, what else? I mean, and technological, I guess, right? I mean, are these the component parts that we're looking at and energy going into this model? And what are some of the major things that are happening right now that are exciting you, especially as you think about it from the institutions, government, cities perspective, which is really where change, I mean, the private sector is one thing, but that's actually, we need the regulation and the controls and the stimulus in order to be able to make this kind of change, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And private sector innovation was really what kicked in early on in the process, certainly in Europe, you know, they businesses started to say, we're investing in that circular economy idea, you know, we're pushing it. And at some point, they're asking for regulation as well. So there is that uh, double plan, really interesting dynamic between private and public sector. If you remember that, uh, when the first circular economy package uh, was put on the back burner by the European Commission in 2015, uh, a cohort uh, of businesses sent an open letter to President Juncker of the European Commission saying, don't push it, this is our agenda, this is an, something that we're investing in. So that dynamic is really interesting. And what we see now is a lot of that innovation saying, well, we want to invest, we want to go at scale, but because it's becoming a globalized conversation as well, we need to address the fragmentation in the market. You know, a company cannot innovate for five, six, seven, 10, 12 different regulatory landscapes because that has a cost. So it really is important to create that alignment. We see, for instance, that European Commission is trying to 
take that concept and, and really go broader beyond its border with the creation of a circular economy global alliance, for instance. We see that at the last United Nations Environmental Assembly, the resolution signed by member states on sustainable consumption and production does make an explicit reference to circular economy as being one of the key strategies. So all of these things are converging, coming together, which means that there is a flurry of activity, which means that we really need to focus the conversation, but it's also what is making it extremely uh, interesting, motivating and encouraging. You see the World uh, Trade Organization is, is talking about circular economy now in yeah. the context of international exchanges. So this one of the, the last things that we did, and actually we launched it today at the uh, foundation is the universal circular economy policy goals to take stock of that activity and saying, okay, we might be on the tip of something. We might be on the cusp of a tipping point. We need to align that conversation and really focus it so we deliver on the right objectives. And, and just to um, make people here aware, those, I think you call them the UCPGs, is that correct? The Universal Circular Economy Policy Goals? Yeah, let's, let's see what they get called uh, after a while. Fair, fair, fair enough. I mean, for now, UCPGs, I mean, I think you, you know, I think we, when we think about systems, and I like thinking about systems level innovation, because I think that's the only way you really can have impact ultimately is thinking, again, the externalities, right? You have, you have to understand, and I think the model for the circular economy is that, right? It's circular, it's regenerative, and it understands at a systems level. But this is about time, you talk about climate change, right? I mean, this global agenda of the circular economy is really tied to the climate mitigation agenda, as well as this movement that's exploded in 2020 in light of COVID and showing the interdependencies of everything and the fragility of our systems, I think. This thing is coming together. And so is that, is, is that what the UCPGs are addressing? And what is the ultimate goal for the future of the circular economy in light of having just announced these? Well, the, the goals are a contribution to that. So they're really addressing first and foremost that, that energy that's behind the concept and trying to harness it and channel it in the right way so we get to scale global level. The, the climate discussion is a very important one because of course, for a long time, the uh, conversation has focused on the energy system. So energy efficiency moving to renewables and that was the sole point of focus of, of the climate discussion. Now we know of course that 45% of global GHG emissions come from the products and the food that we have in the system. And that's, you know, that's a massive part of the equation. And for these things, circular economy has a lot to bring when it comes to bringing that, uh, that number down and contributing by looking at the material side of the economy, what we produce, how we handle it. Because of course, as I said previously, you know, if you don't need to replace a product that's materially intensive, then you do away with the need to mine virgin materials and all the externalities associated with that. So we're talking about chemicals, water, and of course, global uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So that 45% is really important. And we want to bring it to the fore and say, this economic uh, agenda of the circular economy of preserving value is also a way to uh, address the climate change challenge. So it's not a question of saying, oh God, we have to 
tackle the climate emergency. And on top of that, we have to do circular economy stuff. No, no, no. One is conducive to the other. And we're trying to bring all of that together and say, you can solve multiple challenges whilst pushing a new era of economic dynamism. I mean, I think that's the, the, the new era of economic dynamism is ultimately the goal here, right? Which is, this is not about stunting growth or ending our model of capitalism as we know it, or consumerism even. It's really taking this model that is extracted, this, I, I love what you call it, the take, make, waste, you know, model, and really thinking about how do we redefine growth? Specifically, you know, not stunt growth, but redefine it and refocus on the positive societal benefits that can come, I guess, from, from redefining that growth and decoupling economic activity from consumption, period. And, and, and short-termism, I think, has a, has a role in this. So to come to a question, as we look forward um, to the future of the circular economy and the economy, if it is circular, what, how do we address timescales here? Like if, if, if everything right now is focused on quarterly profits and gains, which is largely what it is in the, in the current model, how do, we, how do we, especially when you're talking about governments and NGOs and systems regulation and incentives, how do they account for time? And what is the conversation around the circular economy in that regard? Yeah, that's a fascinating and trick question at the same time, because there is that time element is, is absolutely crucial, long-term, short-term. The fact is that what used to be the long-term, in the long-term, we're going to run out of materials. In the long-term, we're going to be you know, threatened by pretty scary things. Well, that long-term is not very long anymore. So it's becoming short-term as well. And this is why I think there, there's a lot of realization. And what, what's fascinating is to see the, uh, the financial sector really putting a lot of pressure on companies to say, if you don't disclose your climate risks, then we're not investing in your company. If you don't, you know, all of that. And the, uh, the blindness of quarterly profits, which are increasingly being challenged as well. So I, I think there are two elements. Of course, we're trying to solve the short-term pressing challenges and the ones brought about by COVID are, are pretty important. And at the same time, use that as a way to reform the system for the long run. So if I take a very, very concrete example, you have the renovation wave. So looking at uh, how to retrofit buildings to make them climate compliant, energy efficient, that, that's one of the strategies that the uh, European Commission's put on the table after COVID and say, because that's also some jobs that you can't offshore. You're not going to ship a building somewhere. <laughs> right no you could look at it this way and say we'll just create jobs like that but if you add another component and say and we're going to do this in a circular manner by identifying the right materials by making sure that we build with a view to potentially disassemble as opposed to destroy at the end of life then you factor in some long-term resilience and you're still solving for the short-term challenge which is people need jobs on the ground it's just Doing the job in a different way also allows you to future-proof. So it's always finding that right balance, and, and it's easier said than done. And for certain sectors, it's going to be very tricky. Yeah. But the logic of saying we're going to act now for the long term is really important. I, I, like, I like that a lot. And there is, you point out that there are sectors that are going to be more 
uh, easily adaptive and there are going to be some that are going to need a lot more handholding. So I'd like to come to that question that I always find interesting and certainly uh, in your role as lead on institutions, government and cities, how, how do those public institutions, if you will, and the NGOs incentivize this behavior in the private sector? And two-part question, collaborate across each other. So to your point, a major CPG company or a forest, you know, a paper making company who has major forest issues and any company, you know, chemical company, name it, is not having to adapt for every market differently. Whether you're talking about building or otherwise, it can't be local, it needs to be somewhat universal. So how are those two things, how do we incentivize and how do we deal as, as a collaborative effort to make this happen? I think the uh, making the economic case and, and highlighting the economic opportunity of circular economy is what we've done for since the very beginning of the foundation is really working on reports and saying, okay, so if you adopt that strategy, this is the net saving that you can make in material costs. This is what you can gain in terms of visibility because you know there's a lot of volatility in commodity markets as well, and it's coming back, by the way, apparently. Uh, so you know, over yesterday, I gather. <laughs> and having that, uh, you know, making a rational case for why it is important for consumer retention rate, if you're going to move to uh, selling the performance of your products rather than the products themselves, some companies will say yes, but I make more money if I sell more units. Yes, fine. But first of all, that's going to be less and less viable due to the lack of availability of resources. And also, if you really have a, a a customer base which you can retain because you have a contract and and all of these things you you supply you supply the light you, you're not selling a light but you supply mobility you're not selling a car the incentive then is to create the product which is durable because if you're the company that product is your material bank you have no incentive whatsoever to see it just uh just uh fade away or, or, or break down. It doesn't work. So making the economic case was the, the first port of call really. And then after that, you know, the question of how do we globalize that conversation? Uh, we maybe look at the creation of certain standards that are going to be enforced. You know, we, we know that the European Union, which is the biggest market on the planet, has some CE criteria, if you want to put a product on the market, you have to comply with certain, and it's health of consumers, health of environment. You could have the same logic and say circular products. And then when uh, we saw, for instance, that China and the EU have uh, signed an MOU, a memorandum of understanding in, in 2018 on circular economy. Okay, it's very embryonic, but it does point towards the potential creation of common standards. Now, if you imagine that this happens, who is going to be crazy enough to produce something that doesn't fit either on the EU or the Chinese market? Of course, you're going to tip the, the two largest the, economies, I mean, collectively. Absolutely. So all of this for considerations of, you know, long term, you know, and as I said, China, uh, with their ambitions of uh, going uh, carbon neutral by 2060, are looking at that, not only at energy systems. So, when all of these countries and companies understand that it's conducive to the stuff that they've signed up to anyway, they've committed to these, 
they know that they have questions to solve when it comes to chemical pollution, water stress, etc. And if on top of that, it makes economic sense for their businesses to operate in that way, then I think we get a lot of traction. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. And I'm, I'm watching time, so we'll wrap up here in a minute. But I think what's very interesting is the pressure that you mentioned and the progress that is being made in the financial markets to start calling to account on climate, et cetera. And what you have here is in recognition by certain governments that they need to take action and collaborate to put standards in place. And I think about technology and the rare earths that have absolute, I mean, it's the most obvious place where we have finitudes, um, right? And the Chinese are certainly incentivized since they own most of those. So it's very interesting to me to think about the systemic change that the circular economy requires in terms of trust, in terms of collaboration, in terms of prioritization, you know, what, what's first, what's second, in terms of incentives. And then what we, you know, I think you mentioned is it once all of this action was once a long time off. I mean, it is urgent and in front of us. So to close, Joss, if you wouldn't mind, what, what is like the thing that you think, if you wanted to leave everyone here listening with one thing about the future of the circular economy, what is that, what is that takeaway? Well, first of all, I'll just go back quickly on the, the finance sector because it's not only a question of pressure and being accountable, it's also because first and foremost, they see a lot of profitability in those strategies. That's, that's the crux of the interest. And then to, to answer your, your other question, I think it's important to challenge the mindset. And if you start by looking around you at the material world and you think that doesn't fit, that doesn't go anywhere, that has a lifespan of a few minutes and then we waste it. All of this suddenly completely change your lens and, and a lot of what we do at the moment doesn't make sense. And it's interesting to think that there is a much better way that is profitable and that is going to be able to solve some of the biggest challenges. So I think being hopeful, relying on creativity and thinking, you know, because everything has to be redesigned, products and systems, it's a fantastic outlet. I mean, it's much better than to think, oh, this is not working and, and we're doomed and we're just constrained. So let's not do anything. It's not about reduction. It's about growing the right things. It's about growing talent. It's about growing nutrients. It's about growing forests and ecosystems. So and yeah, there's a lot to hope for. It's, it's going to be hard, but you know, I, we, 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 we have nothing without hope. So I, I think uh, I appreciate that hopeful note. And obviously the work you all are doing is amazing. So Joss, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Future of XYZ today, talking about the future of the circular economy. I'm excited to uh, see what happens uh, with this most recent, uh, in, in this coming year, because uh, there's, a, there's a lot happening. So thank you for your work in it. And thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Lisa. Cheers. Thanks for listening to The Future of XYZ. If you like what you've been hearing, please follow Lisa Grelnick on LinkedIn. Visit future-of.xyz or subscribe to The Future of XYZ podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.